You did so good. Uh, see how y'all do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Oh, yeah. Equal to the 930. It's my, it was my grandmama's name and my mama's middle name. And I didn't do this at 930. I just assumed that there weren't any roofs in the house. And I found uh, one of our pastor's kids. Uh, well, her, I'm not that bad. Her middle name is Ruth. So Ada Ruth Mixon. Chris and Jordan have an Ada Ruth Mixon. How cute is that? Uh, this is, uh, we're in this series called Legacy. It's just really simple. In these four weeks, we're looking at four lives from the Bible and just looking at uh, what we can learn from them. Everybody lives and therefore everybody leaves. And when you leave, you will leave a legacy. And what will people know about you? What will they remember about you? And so we're looking at these, taking these snapshots. It's a big jet tour, a panoramic through these and uh, giving you a little bit of uh, uh, history uh, probably you're looking at 1050 BC is when this story unfolds uh, for us. Uh, I've quoted those uh, first uh, books of the Bible to give you a little bit of context because in, jo- uh, in Joshua which is a great book but Joshua ends on a somber note he's like hey you guys will never really be able on your own you'll never be uh, you'll never be able to stay faithful to God and He was right. But Judges ends uh, this way. Judges 21 puts it this way, 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the other nations had a king. Israel wanted a king. They were jealous of the nations that had a king. They didn't have one. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Have we gotten any better today? Uh, In that day, there was division. There was partisanship. They would call it tribalism. We call it partisanship. But there was uh, all of that, and uh, there, there was a moral chaos. Um, it wasn't going well because of this very reality. Uh, there was poor leadership. Um, that's often one of the big global problems, just poor, poor leadership. And into this, this woman named Ruth comes. Um, Ruth enters, and we'll look at, not all of it, of course, but we'll look at, let's get started in the first chapter and the first verse. That's always good. Here, here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, uh, this was the time of Samson. Do you remember Samson? And he was ruling or he was uh, wreaking havoc is what he was doing. But a very tough time. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It's even worse than we thought. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He's traveling to Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. This is where we'll pick up. They're... Um, there is this woman, her name is Naomi, and um, Naomi uh, is from Bethlehem. She's an Israelite, and she travels to Moab with her, with her husband and with her two sons. And in the first few verses, the first five verses, we learn that Naomi loses her husband. He dies, and then those, other, those two sons, that they would die as well. Now, that's a big deal. That's a heavy to lose any loved one, but when you lose a few of them and then particularly when you're a woman back then, she lost because she, was, uh, she lost all uh, male attachment in her life. And in a patriarchal society that was violent, that had poor leadership, that was fractured, uh, that had tribalism, this left her very, very vulnerable. And she's greeted, uh, when, so she's widowed, and then her two daughter-in-laws, you follow me? Because she lost her son, so she's got, um, they were married, so she has two daughter-in-laws, and everybody's widowed. Those names are... Orpah, if you're taking notes, uh, just spell Oprah and then switch the P 
and the R. And some of you know Oprah, who originally hails from the Kosciuszko area of Mississippi, born here anyway. Uh, She was actually named after Orpah in the book of Ruth, and they just couldn't say it over time. So it's Oprah's birth certificate actually says Orpah, O-R-P-A-H, but they just call her Oprah. Um, as we do. What's the name of our production company? Harpo. It's uh, Orpa back, backwards, I believe. But uh, it's, so you got Orpa, and then you have who? You have Ruth. Those are the two, the two daughter-in-laws. And into this darkness, there's added darkness. Division, tribalism, partisanship, moral chaos, poor leadership, famine, and then death. And there's this picture, this, what happens is Naomi is vulnerable. They all are vulnerable, but Orpah and Ruth say to their mother-in-law, hey, we will follow you. We will go with you uh, wherever, you're, wherever you go. And they take her up on it. They begin a track, and then Naomi looks back at them and says, hey, we're all vulnerable. We're all exposed. I, I'll try to survive. You guys go back to where it's going to be safer. And Orpah, I don't know why someone's named after this. Orpah's like, all right, peace. I'll go back. But Ruth says something really beautiful. She says in verse 14 of the first chapter, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. In verse 4, they were weeping together because of their loss and their vulnerability. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That word, remember the Old Testament is dominantly a Hebrew language, and that Hebrew word is debak. And it's actually a really beautiful word. It's, the verb is translated to mean a joining together, a, a closeness. Uh, it's the same uh, Hebrew verb that's used in Genesis chapter 2 that tells a man to leave his mother and father and to cleave to his wife. In order to cleave, it's debak, I want you to be joined together. It's not a sameness, okay? The older you get, they say that couple, married couples start looking a lot alike. That's tragic for Susan. But uh, it's true, but I think in, in many respects, but it's not about sameness. The Bible doesn't promote sameness, but it promotes closeness. And that debag, this Hebrew word, is actually deeper than closeness. It's oneness. It's the mystery of oneness. And this is the, the translation. So Ruth is, you know, Orpah gives a kiss and goes back to safety and comfort, but Ruth clings to her and stays with her. And we see this, um, this debacle, it's really, it's this joining together and it's, um, it's this elemental desire to move from isolation and self-centeredness to connection and caring. Debacle, a, a fundamental elemental desire to move away from isolation and self-centeredness into connection and into caring. It's the opposite of what we read about in Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. It's the opposite of this self-centeredness. It thinks of the good of others. At a time when institutional trust is so low and young, cynical people abound, we can look back at the story of Ruth and see the darkness, and we can see... um, the desire that people would have to isolate themselves, to not trust other people. And the Bach is the, the opposite of this. It's saying that I will be with you. I will cling to you. Uh, I, I want to put it this way. It's showing up for, it's standing with. These are two questions that all lives are going to have to answer. Somewhere you're on your journey and you need to be asking, uh, am I showing up? By the way, isn't it hard to get people to show up today? Like if somebody the other day was like, man, I got 34 people signed up for my small group. I didn't say it out loud. I'm like, they ain't all going to show up. You probably got a small group. 
So I was like, hey, we're going to go out to San Diego. We're going to run this marathon. We got 18 people. I'm like, you ain't going to have 18 people going out. To, you know. it's, just, it's just difficult today. College uh, athletic departments are bragging on sellouts. Have you looked at the stadiums? They're not sold out. There's empty seats up there. It's hard to get people to show up. It's just this malaise. You know, there's a lack of urgency, and people are choosing isolation uh, now, I would say, more than, than ever. But when you don't trust leadership, when there's darkness in the land, when there's tribalism and all, it's more easy to do that. But can I just say, I think one of the legacies of this story is that we need to show up. The Bach is to say, I want to be there. I want to cling. I want to show up. I want to stand with. When we baptized the first hour today, uh, Brett Barnhill, the executive director of Reclaim Project, baptized his son, Bo. And Brett was... Um, one of the guys that took me to uh, the South African region of Lesotho last month, I got to see firsthand where some of our church mission dollars go to where um, we are praying for, to see the orphans and the widows and to see love being dis on display. And it's inspiring to see someone move away from isolation and self-centeredness into connection and caring and to say, and when, when we say it like this, when we talk about showing up, when we talk about standing with, we're talking about the most vulnerable. We're talking about people who need it. We're talking about um, a kindred spirit. Your life, you must ask the question, am I showing up and who am I showing up for? Who am I standing with? Uh, it's a call for you and I to move out of our isolation and self-centeredness. Last night, um, I did a wedding at St. Luke's Methodist. Y'all know where that is? It's right there. You could walk to it in two minutes. And I, as I was walking back to our church to finish studying for this sermon with my gift of procrastination, I, uh, I noticed a cop car and, uh, that's patrolling, regularly patrolling out there. And I'm like, I know they're always watching me up here at late at night and stuff. So I thought I would just say hello. So I kind of did this. It was tinted windows. I'm like, and uh, she rolled down her squad car, her window, and we, we began to talk, an African-American woman named Barbara. And she was like, wait, are you late for this wedding? I'm like, no, 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 that, somebody's doing it. That, that's the church I pastor at. Somebody else is doing the wedding. Somebody else is wearing my microphone, putting cooties on it here in our church. But I was over there doing it. And she was, you know, rolled her eyes and laughed and everything. We had a good time talking. As I was walking off, she said, hey, preacher, would you pray for us? And just the tone of her voice and just that moment. I don't know if anybody feels me, but I felt that. And I was already moved, my gravity was moving this way and I just kind of awkwardly went back to the car and got closer to the window and said, ma'am, I will, we will pray for you. And you know, there's a, a lot of hurt in our city now and we're not called to run away from it. We're called to move toward it. And my heart has been, um, it's just gravitating toward leaders in our city and those who are trying to solve problems and I think our church can have a big part of it but I, I, in that moment I was like I want us to show up for you I want us to stand with you I want you to know that you're supported this Saturday we're going to go out and we're going to stand with and show up for 13 I think different ministry partners or different people rock stars doing good in our community let's stand with officers as well let's stand with people who need us to stand with them that is debacle and it's deeper than that it's a joining together it's the opposite of our self-isolation uh, self-centeredness and isolation David Brooks let me back up because I, I don't want to steal my own thunder David Brooks wrote a book called The Second Mountain uh, after his great work, The Road to Character. And in this book, he says that a person has to climb two mountains in their life. The first mountain is really understandable. It needs very little explanation. It's the mountain of, of your goals. It, it has a lot to do with success and security and comfort. 
uh, your career. It's the normal stuff of life. That's the first mountain that you, that you climb. But he talks about a second mountain. It's the name of the book. The second mountain, he says, is it's when your life shifts because of a pain, because of a loss, because of maybe a divorce or a job termination or a diagnosis from the doctor, something that you weren't waiting for, that you would never sign up for, it rudely, intrusively entered your life and it made your life shift. And he says that it breaks our heart. Anytime you experience pain or loss, it breaks our heart, but it can do more than just break our heart. It can break us open to new dimensions in our lives. It can break our hearts open to things that we have been neglecting. So you and I will live with a broken heart. If you're going to love, you're going to have your heart broken. If you're going to live in this world, Ruth did this, you're going to have your heart broken. You're going to experience loss, but will it just break your heart? Is it just something that you grieve and sit in, in the pain, or will it break your heart open to new dimensions of your life? And here's what David Brooks would say about this uh, second mountain in life. As we begin this long climb out of this valley, ever so slowly our posture, our decisions, our politics, our life design is driven less by ego. And I just love this. I hope somebody else does too. It's driven less by ego and more by a rich and weathered empathy that points others above ourselves. This can lead to that debacle. This can lead to that oneness, to that clinging, to that steadfast, enduring love. And so with this story, back to Ruth, I want to share four quick uh, lessons we can learn from this life. And oh, this, let me get, capture the beauty of, of uh, Ruth here as the story progresses in Ruth 1. I think this is of 14, 15, 16. And, and she said, this is Naomi, see your sister-in-law, Orpah. She's gone back to her people and to, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. This is famous. This is quoted at funerals and even weddings. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from me. In colonial America, almost all the churches were built with a cemetery on the front right side of the church. Almost all of them. It was strange if you pulled up to church and you didn't have a cemetery out on the front right. That's not true anymore. In fact, we do everything to avoid death, not to talk about it. We want it to be a sequestered thing where it's not prominent in our thinking. But um, in the Bible, it's, it's front and center. Everybody lives and everybody leaves and everybody's going to leave a legacy. And so here what we see is Ruth. We see the clinging. And by the way, Orpah talks about going back to serve her gods. History Artists were not kind to Orpah. There's depictions, there's renderings of her serving these gods and living in debauchery. Uh, but Ruth is our central character here. And here we see the clinging, but we see that she's relocating. That um, in, in your relocation could be a big deal. Psychologists today tell us that when you move to a new place it can be a big deal some some of you don't know why you're stressed you just you just moved here you know uh you're thinking about or you're going to be moving somewhere and there, it's a big big deal to move but relocation if you're moving from jackson to canton or from mississippi to tennessee it, it i mean it's really not that big a deal but if you're ruth a moabite moving to 
Bethlehem of Judah, it's a big deal. And let me sketch this for you. In Abraham, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, he says to him, I want you to bless all nations. I want you and your family to go and to bless all nations. It's the first example of the Bible of uprootedness, of going and, you know, not being uh, secure in a place. And so God says, Abraham, you go in your family and I have this grand mission for you that you will bless other nations because this plan is pointing to Jesus. It, the ball is moving forward and it's gonna be bigger and better than ever. And Abraham uh, starts out on his mission and what happens? Anytime you go on a grand mission, what's gonna happen? Obstacles. What's the big obstacle that we encounter? Conflict. Abraham, I mean, you get one chapter into it, and he has a conflict primarily with his nephew named Lot. And Lot, this is played out, this tawdry drama, this soap opera is played out for us in Genesis, particularly in chapter 19. And Lot, uh, they, they fight. Abraham and Lot fight. And you know what their fighting is over? Anybody remember? Sheep. They fight over sheep. You, ever, you know those stories that we see um, Somewhat frequently in the news, like a man in Topeka, Kansas, kills another man in McDonald's over French fries. And you're like, over French fries? Now, McDonald's French fries are good, but like, do you kill somebody over that? Well, it's not about the French fries. There's so much more going on. That's a sensationalized uh, take um, on, on something that's deeper. But with Abraham and his nephew Lot, there's something deeper going on, but they start fighting over sheep. Lot goes right and Abraham goes left. And we pick up in the story where Lot enters into an incestual relationship and fathers a, a son through this incest. And the boy he names, drumroll, the boy he names Moab, follow me. You see, Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth would be a descendant of this incestual relationship. And Abraham, his descendants, you, you know, would become Israelites. And for a thousand years plus, this, uh, these warring factions went on. If you look at numbers, I'll cite two brief examples. I could do more, but if you look at numbers, you'll see that the Moabites are calling across the valley, cursing the Israelites. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites refused Moabites to even worship with them. So this is a hate field. This is a family split apart. It's full of hate and it goes on and on and on. So these are, these are enemies of each other. So when Ruth says, I'm going to cling to you and I'm going to go to your land, she's not just relocating to Canton or Gluckstadt. She's saying, I'm going to go into enemy territory and she's, she's a foreigner in addition to the fact that she's poor and she's widowed. And in a patriarchal society, I said it once, but it's a big deal. She was exposed and vulnerable because of that. And so we see in this story four principles that I want to give you. The first is a divided world needs love, and love is risky. A divided world, a world that's dark, a world that has division and partisanship and poor leadership, a world where there's not prosperity for all people, into this world, we need to be bringers of love. We need to extend love into this world, but we want love to be comfortable. In fact, we don't want to show up, as I talked about earlier. We want to show out. We, we want to stand out. We want people to see us. But Scripture calls us to a life of more meaning when it says, don't worry about showing out in front of others. I want you to show up for people who need you. And in a divided world, what we need, the, what the world needs is love, and love is risky. Love, like Ruth, 
moves away from comfort into the unknown. How are you with the unknown? Do you, do you gravitate? Do you like ritual and routine? Do you like your habits? Do you like to stay where it's comfortable? Do you watch the kind of the same thing when you go to bed at night and do the same things during the day? Some of that can be good and calming and soothing, but just look, there's something way bigger than your comfort. Love is greater than your comfort. You say, preacher, that's a weird dichotomy. I think it's an appropriate one because we often dichotomize love and hate and we should. But what about love and comfort? And how much do you love your comfort? For if you are going to love like God wants you to love, you're going to have to move away from what you know into the unknown. You yourself will have to make some types of relocation. I'm not referring to geographic location as in Ruth, but you yourself will need to. It could, it could include that, but you need to relocate uh, yourself, um, the calling that God has on your life. Secondly, as we take meaningful risk in the name of love, we can find ourselves mysteriously cared for. And this gets us to the second chapter of Ruth, where as it plays out, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they enter in uh, in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Uh, they enter in and they go into this uh, barley field, which is good news. How, why is it good news? If they enter into this barley field at harvest, that tells us that the famine is over that farmers are farming and they're growing things and people are being fed and there's less uh, loss of life, at least uh, to hunger. Uh, there's still some violence uh, going on around them, but there's, there's, there's no longer famine. And God set up this thing in Leviticus, part of the Leviticus law of, of this concept called gleaning. And gleaning we see here in Ruth as they enter this field, this barley field, there's a wealthy landowner who has his men out farming. And this man's name is, do you know what his name is? Boaz, B-O-A-Z, a wealthy landowner. And Boaz was, at least in this respect, he was following the law of God. He was saying, uh, we'll let our men do the gleaning. We'll, we'll make sure they understand this law, which is archaic for us, a little bit odd. But uh, it's again, back to the scripture, what we see in the Bible is often and always God's heart for the poor. God's plan to help the poor is for his people to help the poor. And in this, we see this wealthy man saying, I want to make sure my men do the gleaning. And the gleaning is they leave behind some. They don't take it all when they're harvesting. They leave some behind so that the poor can come in and they can glean. They can take some and they can have. So this is just a testimony to Ruth and Naomi that they're not going to starve to death. They're going to they're be okay. God is going to provide for them. And you know, when you're gleaning, you probably aren't looking your best. And so Ruth is out there and she's gleaning and she's probably hot and she's probably got, uh, you know, uh, dirt on her face and stuff. And uh, think about if you're married, think about the first time you met uh, the person you're married to. I bet you remember the first time. I bet you remember uh, what you look like. Women, I bet you had your hair done. I bet you had your makeup on. I bet you, you know, you primmed yourself, you propered yourself, you look good. And, uh, but here, uh, it's not that way. This was hard toil. But this wealthy man, Boaz, notices her, and I don't have it on the screen, but in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, whose is this, this young woman here, who's, who does she belong to? So he notices her, but Naomi and Ruth, they devise a plan to, for uh, Ruth to win Boaz's 
heart. And it, it involves sitting at his feet. You can read about it later. Women, I don't uh, recommend it. I certainly don't recommend it for my daughter to do that to uh, any man. But anyway, she, it's, it's part of the plan, and it's odd for us in our time. But it works. And Boaz, this wealthy landowner, takes Ruth to be his wife. And they would later, they would have a son. It says this uh, in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, this is to Ruth, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Some English translations would say it's a, uh, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's family, which is kind of, you know, a little off kilter for us. Stay with me though. Uh, this kinsman redeemer played a role when people were, um, when they needed um, living, when they needed property, when they needed to be bought back, needed something bought back, when they, needed to, when they were outcasts and needed to be brought in. And there were some requirements. One was they had to have a right, they had to have resources, and they had to have a resolve. The right would be the closest living relative. So it's a good thing that Boaz uh, has, um, he's a relative. That's a good thing. He must have the resources. Boaz is doing well uh, for himself. And then he must have the resolve. He must desire to do this, and he did. And we see this word kindness. This is uh, speaking of the Lord. And this Hebrew word, uh, again, the original language of the, this part of the Bible is, uh, you want to try to take a stab at that out loud? Remember Hebrew? Yes. Hesed. So the C there, it's, it's silent. It's hesed. And it... Um, it's God's kindness, but it's different than a polite wave. Like, oh, they were kind. I saw so-and-so. They were kind to me. That's a superficial um, in, in the truest sense of the word. But this is a deep kindness. This is an enduring love. This is an incredible loyalty. This is a love, as one writer describes, as a love that is attached, a love that you can't get away from. It's God's love for us. You mean to, to his people that are rebellious and stubborn and idolatrous that keep this vicious cycle of judges that are looking for earthly rulers that, you know, people that are looking for politicians to save them from everything, you know, those kind of people, you're going to love them with great loyalty. And this is God's love for us. It's said, It's this deep love. It's this attachment that is so great. A long time ago when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp uh, far away, out of state, out west, and, and uh, there were, um, the camp was designed for, to help and love and support young people who had physical and uh, mental disabilities. And I was, for a two-week stretch, in charge of this um, um, ropes course. It was an obstacle course, basically above ground. It was 50 to 60 feet up there, and it, it induced a lot of fear in people and the goal, you can imagine, was to say, hey, let's help you overcome your fear. A lot of us are scared of heights. This was kind of a doozy. And I remember, you know, it was all built on the rope and the harness and having a secure rope and harness that were connected that would never fail because you can't send someone home falling 50, 60 feet. Uh, it couldn't happen. But 100% of the time, it worked. And so that gave me great confidence to say, hey, hey, hold on. And I remember there was a boy named Newsom. It's been a long time ago. But I still remember Newsom, and Newsom was this little guy. He had a lot going against him, but he had this joy. And Newsom was scared. He was trembling, and so I, I was thinking that, you know, I'd given reassurance to all the other kids. I'm like, Newsom, he's, no, I'm, this is a, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best sales pitch. I'm like, it, you're going to be attached. You're going to be attached. It's going to be fine. You're going to be attached. And he took me up on it. He had just enough to give it a shot. And as he was going, you know, a lot of people slip and, and, and fall, but they don't fall, fall, because 
it's secure. They're caught. They're attached to it. And I saw Newsom walking up high and walking across. He's like, I'm attached. I'm attached. I'm attached. But like, did he, it wasn't like he fully believed it. It was almost like he was hoping that I'm attached, I'm attached. And as he got toward the end, there was these logs, and he, and he gets there, and uh, he slips. And he, you know, the slipping led to the falling, and, but it, the harness, it, everything worked, and it pulled him back up, and he got off, the, you know, past the last seven, eight, ten logs, gets off, and then he goes, I'm attached, I'm attached. And it was like, he said it, and he hoped it was true, but it wasn't until he fully let go, it wasn't until he fell that he realized he's attached. And I think, um, Hassad, I think this is a beautiful picture and illustrates a bit uh, a really important part of the life of Ruth is that um, when we give ourselves, when we do move away from our comfort and when we do take a risk on behalf of another, when we stand, I will, uh, I will show up for, I will stand with someone, I will be joined with them. When we risk it and we love someone, when we love others, then we find God mysteriously providing for us. And can I say that's his love for you? When you move toward the mission that he has for you, when you move away from what's comfortable in your life, when you want to live a more God-honoring life, he will have you. You are attached, and his love is attached to you. You cannot escape it. Yea, we have so little, really nothing to be afraid of because of his love for us. The third thing I want to say is while we are living out our story, there's a bigger story taking place. While we're living out our story there's a bigger story taking place. Look at the fourth chapter of Ruth. How does Ruth begin? Uh, Judges ends with Israel wanted a king. All the other nations had a king. Israel didn't have a king. They had judges and they didn't lead well. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And then there was famine and then there was death. It started with death but it ends with genealogy. It started with death but it ends with birth. It's sort of like a reversal, isn't it? fourth chapter of Ruth so Boaz took Ruth as she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son then the woman said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him by the way seven is a, is a number in the bible that that uh, has connotations of completeness sons were more favored than their daughters in this world shouldn't have been but they were then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap can't you see this happening and began to nurse and the and the woman whoop see when the clicker gets stuck it goes twice and and um can't you see this happening and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name they gathered around they were excited a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And you're probably super bored at this point. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, we just thought that this was two widowed woman, women living out a small, unimportant story. But this was after 1,000 years plus of infighting, of rivalry, of no love lost between the Moabites and the Israelites. This is Abraham's people and Lot's people coming back together. This was a nation getting united. And this was because of Jesus, a world that was going to be transformed. Because the father of David, you know, this is the lineage that brought us Jesus, the Savior of the world. This, was, this story was playing out, I mentioned, 
uh, at the time of Samson. And while Samson was out being strong he-man and knocking down the huge walls of the temple and fooling around with a woman named Delilah and jeopardizing the very national security of his own country for his own personal pleasure and debauchery, while he was doing that, the big tough guy, God was using this woman to change the world. Her small story was a part of a bigger story. The fourth and final point is the team comes up. The fourth and last is this. God uses the least likely to be instruments of redemption. The last word first, redemption. This is a word. You know how we preached Philippians and it was four chapters and we said uh, how happiness happens. That was a, what we called it. And, and we mentioned that 16 times the word joy is used. And you can just read it and go, man, joy, joy, joy. It's, it's full of it. Um, 23 times in four chapters of Ruth, the word redeem, redeemer, or redemption is mentioned. And back to Boaz, I didn't have time. This was a hard one to preach. I didn't have time to dig into it in this environment. But in my study, I was reminded that Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, is, is a picture of what Christ has done. Finding those outside, finding the outcast, finding the one that's marginalized, finding the one that doesn't have hope and bringing them back in and restoring them, redeeming them and paying the penalty for their sins. That's what Jesus has done for us. He is our redeemer. Now the first part, the least likely, Ruth is poor, she's a foreigner, She's a widow and she's childless. Women back then didn't have much value to society if they didn't have children. The hostility, I mean, being in a foreign land, she had everything stacked against her. I joke uh, with my kids, I've got a boy and a girl and a boy. And my daughter, I've said this for years, I go, Haley doesn't have a chance. I'm introducing her to people like, she doesn't have a chance in the world. She's our middle child, only daughter, redhead, preacher's daughter. And it's just sort of a playful type of thing. Um, God loves redheads more than, amen, Lauren, I got you there. God loves redheads more than other folks. It's in there somewhere. But um, none of those things really work against her. But being a poor, being widowed, being a foreigner, being a woman, all, all these things, being childless, all these things worked against Ruth. But can we not see the heart of God in this? He wants to use those society deems as least likely. And so today, here's what I want to say. If you know the blessing of God in your life and you sense that you're walking in his favor, would you think of others that you can stand with, that you can show up for? But today it could be you. You could be the one on the outside. You could be the one because of your sin, because of... of your condition because of something in you you're the one that's that's not included that's not invited in and the message of the gospel is vastly different it's part of the legacy of Ruth and so one two three four a divided world needs love and love is risky as we take meaningful risk in the name of love we can find ourselves mysteriously cared for and while we're living out our story there is a bigger story God uses the least likely instruments of his redemption. Would you stand and I'll pray for us. Father, let your word take root in us. Let it bear fruit in our lives. Let us be different as we wrestle with some of these dominant ideas from this story.
that's sort of tucked away long ago, but it's for us today. And our times, though we have advancement in technology and such, there's so many similarities in our world that's hurting. So minister to your people. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Lord, the team are going to sing. We're opening up the front of our room as we did the first hour. Uh, we would love to pray with you today, can we? Can we pray for you? If you want to make a, need to make a decision for Christ, we want to be here for you. If, if you want to come and kneel uh, at the altar, we're inviting you uh, to do that. I know that sometimes it's easy to kind of clench up and get tight, but uh, forget everybody around you. Don't worry about it. Let's let these few moments, we're going to get you out on time, but let's let these few moments be honoring to God. And we believe there could be something special about this time of prayer. Let us pray with you now if we can.